Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhere to Apologetics. Glad you're joining us today. I got Eric Manning of Testify here, and we're we'll gonna be talking about um, has Apologia explained away the resurrection and responding to one of his videos. Um, so Eric, what's up, man? How's it going? Hey, thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. I've been thinking about a lot of Apologia's arguments against the resurrection for a while now. And I mean, let's give the guy some credit. He is a machine when it comes to responding to the resurrection argument. And uh, as we were kind of talking about at the beginning, kind of irritatingly, of course, he made another video on the resurrection today that um, we were, we're not going to be necessarily watching, but it will definitely have some overlap into that video. So if you watch that video today, just know that I will definitely be addressing at least some of his arguments, um, if not directly, definitely indirectly, um, because he does bring up a lot of the same things. And so, so yeah, I'm excited to be, to be a part and we'll let's talk about it. It'll be fun. And it seems like Paul has like two big niches and one of them is the resurrection. And the other one's like young earth creationism. Um, but before we get into responding, Eric, since it's your first time on the channel, you've seen me have like a brief introduction, like who you are, what you do, um, what got you interested in things like this and wearing like hideous uh, St. Louis Cardinals hats <laughs> on the show. Well, I'm from St. Louis. And so I'm, I'm sorry for that. Um, we, we were used to winning up until recently here we've fallen on some rough times especially this past month but uh no um i got interested in apologetics um basically just trying to share my faith with coworkers and getting stumped um with people who just um threw objections at me that i couldn't handle and that really bothered me and one thing led to another and i was able to um uh, come in contact with uh tim mcgrew um who some of your your listeners might know of uh, who gave me basically a whole syllabus of things to read um, that answered a lot of the questions that I have and just helped me reconnect my passion with history. I've always liked history. Um, and so that's why I really like historical type of apologetics. Uh, I have the YouTube channel Testify, um, which um, some of your, your uh, subscribers might know about. Um, and so uh, normally I'm not doing things uh, on a screen face to face, it's all usually kind of animated type of videos and different things like that. Um, and so I started that channel, really got serious about it, you know, this past um, about late December, January. And it went from like 400 subscribers to um, about 3,700, and it's steadily growing. And um, I'm definitely really thankful for that. And I, I just really hone in on historical apologetics. Um, like I said, I things regarding the reliability of the New Testament, uh, things regarding objections, you know, are there contradictions, things like that. Uh, and just anything about the argument for miracles, um, you know, the common objections we hear, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and David Hume and all that kind of stuff. Those are the things that are really interesting to me. And I feel like I'm just getting started in, in laying out my case. I feel like my channel is basically just kind of one long sustained cumulative case that's just kind of brought down into bite-sized digestible you know short five to ten to fifteen minute videos um and i have spent some time responding to other atheists like uh, apologia is one um and i will definitely be making more videos in response to him as well because he he just gives us so much content to to work with mm -hmm. so that's hopefully in a somewhat of a nutshell i guess maybe that was a little long-winded i don't know but that's kind of a little bit about me. Yeah, that's great, Eric. I appreciate that. Um, so we're going to jump into this video in a moment. Um, we're just going to respond, work our way through it, and we're just going to see what happens. Um, so Eric, do you have any kind of like 
um, preliminary thoughts you want to get out there before we pull up this video and get rolling? Yeah, sure. I do want to note that this video is a little bit over two years old, but it is definitely a very good summary of basically his position. And if you watch his latest video on the resurrection, he reiterates a lot of the same things. So I don't feel like I'm working with overly dated material. This is still seems to be Apologia's view. And I picked this video in particular because I feel like it's a really good short summary. And Apologia does that. He works with other videos that are basically good short summaries and he tries to pick them apart. And so, and if Apologia somehow happens to watch this video and he feels like I've been unfair or misrepresented him in any way. Um, I feel like we have good rapport over, you know, Twitter and social media. So he is more than welcome to call me out. And um, I also wanted to respond to this video because it's had well over a thousand or hundred thousand views. So it's had a pretty good reach and not a lot has been said totally in response to it. And so that's why I wanted to address it. So yeah, that's basically all I wanted to, to cover as far as preliminaries and I'm ready to to dig in when you are, Zach. Alrighty, I'm excited, Eric. This should be a lot of fun. So what we're gonna do is pull this up, and then Eric, if you were talking before, if you want me to pause, just let me know. So yep. let's get going. All right. When presenting the case that Jesus rose from the dead, the Christian will often point to a set of historical facts, which generally boil down to Jesus was crucified, people claimed he rose from the dead, and now the church exists. Now, would an actual I'm just curious here because I thought about this. I just listened to this video a little bit before. Is that a pretty accurate representation, do you think, of like kind of like maybe like the minimal facts or such around the resurrection? Kind of. I, I, yeah, it's fine as far as minimal facts goes. I do not take a minimal facts approach. And I think that is why Apologia has had as much success that he's had. Because I feel like the minimal facts approach, just to be honest, and, and maybe some of your viewers disagree with me on this and that's totally fine. I don't think that it does the lifting that we would like it to be able to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I more go for a maximal data approach, which is why I argue that the gospels are reliable. And yeah, that might go a little bit across the grain of, you know, the mainstream scholarship and biblical scholarship. But if you actually take the time to read a lot of the mainstream biblical scholarship, I don't really feel like there's any reason why we have to just only grant the data that they're willing to grant to us. Like I, I can read Jesus Interrupted by Bart Ehrman and due to some of the weak nature of the arguments that are found in that book, my faith ends up coming out stronger than actually weaker. And so yes, Paul's, summary is, is okay. Um, I would just use, like I said, more of a maximal data approach. And I think that's probably why people have really struggled, I think, in my opinion, at least to some extent, to really reply to Apologia in a way that I, I think would be adequate. Hmm. So it's like, Eric, I'm just curious, like, is your apologetic methodology, do you lean towards like more like an evidentialist approach? De absolutely. 100%. I, I'm very strong as far as evidentialism goes, like I said, I was very influenced by uh, Tim McGrew, who is as yeah. about as evidentialist as, as he comes, uh, as it comes. And so I would definitely take a very strong evidentialist approach. And like I said, if you read some of the, the, the biblical scholarship that's out there for yourself, instead of just like appealing to consensus and just being okay with that, 
their arguments aren't necessarily, like I said, that all that difficult to pick apart. I mean, take for example, just, and this was gonna take us way far afield and we don't, but I'm just using this as one example. If you look at the arguments against the pseudonymy of uh, the, the, the pastoral epistles, the first and second Timothy, we don't know who wrote them, they're a forgery, right? That, that's what Bart Ehrman says. Well, the arguments for that, when you actually look at them are quite weak. I, they're not they're not necessarily like these overwhelming amazing arguments they're they're actually very easy to pick apart um and i have a video um that you know maybe i could put in the comments later people want to yeah. see that video where i where i argue for the pastorals i'm not going to get into that here because like i said that would just take too much time but they're just not that really impressive more often than not now that's not to say that there aren't difficulties in the new testament text that really do pose a problem that are that that do take some a little bit of work to perhaps harmonize, or or maybe there is no harmonization that necessarily would be available. I mean, that's fine. But I think what we can say is that the gospels um, have are generally reliable uh, when compared to looking at any other ancient document. And I'm definitely willing to take that approach and 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 bear that burden. And it is a heavier burden than just you know appealing to the consensus of scholars. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. Let's um, look at it. Tim McGrew's article in the Bla and Lydia's on the Blackwell Companion definitely helps me consider evidentialism more. Absolutely. And I would highly recommend your, um, the, those watching, just look it up, Lydia McGrew, uh, her website and, and the Blackwell Companion natural, to Natural Theology, the argument for miracles. It is an argument, or excuse me, it is an article that she has posted. You don't have to buy the Blackwell Companion. She has put that article in PDF format for free on her website. And I would highly recommend that people get a hold of that, those materials, because it's going to be some of the basis for what we're going to go over in, in covering this video. A wise man once told me Bayes is based. So, you know, let's do it. <laughs> Bayes is based. Resurrection of Jesus explain these facts? I suppose, but a supernatural explanation can be used to explain anything. Did an all-powerful being have a hand in starting my car this morning? It's certainly possible, but it's also possible that when I turned the key, a mechanical process drew air and fuel into the cylinders, a spark was ignited, combusting the system to begin the engine revving. We can't rule out that God started my car, but his involvement isn't necessary to explain my running car. Is there a similar explanation for Do you want to pause there and look at um, what were your thoughts on this kind of idea, Eric? Yeah, I mean, if your engine is working correctly, he's right. There's no need to postulate any sort of supernatural cause. I mean, yeah, sure, we can't rule it out, but it's absolutely unnecessary, right? Mm -hmm. Normally, natural explanations are going to work just fine to everyday mundane things like starting your car. But let's just think about this. This isn't what the resurrection argument is like at all. Um, I, I think this is just something that I thought of was, let's just say you're having a season of prayer and God gave you a desire to minister to some people in the remote regions of Africa, right? And not only that, but say the pastor of your church, let's say you go to a very charismatic church, calls you in front of everybody out. He calls you out and prophesies to you and says, hey, I really feel like the Lord's telling you that you should go to Africa and be take a missions trip and reach out to people in the bush. Um, he had no prior knowledge of this time that you've experienced in prayer. And so after much preparation, you get to Africa and somebody loans you, let's say a Land Rover or something like that. Ooh. And you on your way to your destination, destination, you're going to meet some other missionaries and 
crap, the engine just completely bombs out. It quits working, right? You're not alone. You have some people helping you. Um, and one of them even has like years of mechanical experience. He lifts the hood. He takes a look at your engine and he says, this thing is completely fried. We are stuck. This is a very bad situation. Parts are broken. I don't know how exactly we're supposed to get out of here. Let's join hands and pray, right? And so you go ahead and do that. And then you just get the idea. I'm going to try and turn the car over and it starts. You don't question it. You just are like, let's book it to our destination before something else goes bad. You get there. The mechanic guy who's accompanying you on your trip lifts the hood, looks up, says, I have never seen anything like this before. This engine was pretty much toast and it looks completely like a brand new engine. Well, would you conclude that, well, maybe we hallucinated this whole thing. Would you conclude that, you know, maybe there was nothing really wrong and the mechanic was lying to me, you know, or, or maybe he was just really mistaken. I mean, I, some of those are semi-reasonable explanations, some more than others, but is it really like the best explanation? Would we be completely unreasonable to say that a miracle occurred in that kind of a situation? You're not necessarily forced to say that a miracle occurred, but I think given the sum total of the data that we would have compared to any sort of other natural possible explanation, I think it would be completely reasonable to think, hey, God answered our prayer. God told me I was supposed to be here and minister. It took a miracle for me to get here, but here I am now. You know what I'm saying? And so I just think it's kind of a weird analogy. I mean, uh, the, and this is what I really wanted to, to focus in on. And I know we've barely gotten through the video. I mean, we're like <laughs> yeah. 30 seconds in, but go ahead, Zach. Were you going to ask something? No, I just kind of like a similar analogy on a different line, but feel free to add, finish with your thought, Eric. Um, oh, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Do your analogy. No, so, um, uh, and then I'll jump in. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, the best explanation, like, it still needs to explain everything. Like, I think about, like, evolution, and, like, it's just, like, right off the bat, because then this is one of Paul's wheelhouses, if you ever listen to it. Like, I have no problem with evolution. But what I'm thinking about is, like, there's different models of, like, how evolution works. So, like, a lot of scientists have moved away from, like, from what I understand, I could be wrong here, a neo-Darwinistic, like, picture of evolution, because it can't explain everything. And they'll have, like, these more, like, modern synthesis or even, like, an extended synthesis with, like, evolutionary theory. And, like, we're, we're changing our theories. To, it incorporates more because it can explain the data better. Um, so we don't always just stick with the simplest explanation if they can't explain the data. That's my thought. Well, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And so what I, what I wanted to say is when you think about the resurrection and, and you think about the explanations that Paul is going to get into, here in a minute, the 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 built-in probability is is already pretty low. I mean, and this is where I think people haven't really responded to Apologia all that well. Is that we need to realize that the most probable thing that would happen um, is, after somebody dies and is crucified is is nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. what, what happens when people yeah. die? You know, more often than not, nothing happens. People go mm -hmm. on and live their lives. It's sad. And they, they, but, but nothing happens. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's easy to really dive into the specific explanations about how Christianity arose. And we can get into all kinds of theories and how to explain away the data in order to save our skepticism, um, which is what we're going to see Apologia do here in a minute. But what really ends up occupying the most probability space is, is that when people die, nothing happens, no grief hallucinations, no conversion disorders, 
Uh, and even those people who do experience things like grief hallucinations, they're not led to the conclusion that the person is physically risen from the dead, mm -hmm. right? And, and so what's the probability that somebody is going to have such a powerful grief hallucination that they conclude that, you know, so-and-so rose from the dead and that they're going to be able to go out and convince a whole group of people that this is really true and they're all going to get caught up in some sort of mass delusion together. Well, that already has enormously low probability are already built into it, uh, given that if, you know, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. I mean, think about like the first century, right? It was completely mm -hmm. filled with messianic expectations. I mean, the, the Gospel of Luke has people coming up to John the Baptist and being like, are you the Messiah? You know, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of Josephus outlines, all kinds of different messianic pretenders and uh, people who claim to be somebody great. Um, you have the the Bar Kokhba uh, rebellion that happened in like around 135, where you know he was really able to kind of fight and push back against Rome for a little while until he got completely squashed. You know he claimed to be some sort of Messiah. Um, and what happened? Did, did anybody have grief hallucinations that we know of after John the Baptist was beheaded? Was there some sort of uh, resurrection movement around Bar Kokhba or any of these other? messianic you know pretenders or anything like that no which is exactly what we would expect so hmm. I, I think that's where a lot of people miss it and this is part of what the mcgrews get into in their their article that i was talking about is that the most likely thing that that fills the most amount of the probability space is absolutely nothing and so this data is actually quite surprising now i actually pointed this out on twitter and if you follow Apologia on Twitter, everybody knows that the guy likes to take a tweet that a, a Christian made. And I, I like Apologia. I think we get along and, and it's fine. But he'll take something that you make and he'll retweet it and just kind of, you know, try and rebut something that you say or, or even joke around and that kind of thing. And true to form, Apologia, when I mentioned this in a, like a short tweet that the most expected thing we would have is nothing, he said, mm -hmm. well, the most likely outcome from buying a lottery ticket, and I'm just reading the tweet, is basically nothing. And yet every lottery winner can be traced to buying a ticket. Do you see what's going on here? So Apologia actually tacitly admits that his explanation is already has exceedingly low probability. Yeah. I mean, the odds, of, the odds of winning the lottery, I mean, I looked this up, the odds of winning mega millions is one in 302 million. Or winning Powerball is like one in 292 million. And so it's kind of like the, the dumb and dumber line, you know, it's like, so you're mm -hmm. saying there's a chance. Mm -hmm. um, and so in response, I, I, I kind of kidded around with him and, and threw the, the dumb and dumber gif at, at him, you know, like, so you're saying there's a chance. And he said, well, at least I bought a ticket, which think about that for just a second. What he's saying here is that the resurrection explanation doesn't even get you into the game okay mm -hmm. any natural explanation is a ticket mm -hmm. right it, it, and again he could correct me if i'm misrepresenting him at all but any natural explanation is basically he's saying and this is what you hear from a lot of skeptics any explanation any natural explanation as long as it's a natural explanation it's better w why 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 should we assume that right mm -hmm. that that seems to me like the odds of a miracle are so low that you're not even in the game. But if, if you're going to believe that as a skeptic, 
you, you've basically worked yourself in a epistemological hole. Like until you rethink that criteria, how could you ever know if you're wrong? Mm-hmm. You, you, you can't, right? And I think this is like the most important thing. This is the one thing that I want the, the, those watching to, to get is, is given those assumptions, he can't ever know that he's wrong. And so these are the remarks of somebody who's basically closed off his mind to the possibility of the supernatural, or at least it seems so. Maybe he could be changed if he had a very overwhelming personal experience that other people shared. But I, I don't think that that is necessary in order to, to prove that the resurrection happened at all. I think what we need to be able to prove is that the resurrection happened is that the explanation um, basically is, is, is not as ad hoc and is clumsily thrown together, but actually covers all the data. Um, mm. It just has to be better. That, that's basically it. Um, unless you're going to say that there's, there's no, no God and you, that's, that's a whole other argument. And so I like what Tim McGrew has to say. This is actually a quote. I'm going to read it real quick. Um, that uh, is from his uh, book, The Four Views on uh, Christianity and Philosophy. Uh, it's got Graham Oppie in there. His, Oppie's chapter and McGrew's chapter are worth the price of the book. Uh, the, re- the other two are just kind of eh. But um, McGrew says, any initial prejudice, initial prejudice excuse me, against miracles, any ground for assignment of a low initial probability to the claim that a miracle has occurred, cannot be any greater than the rational prejudice, great or small, against the conjunction of two claims, that there is a God who has destined his human creations for a future state of existence, and that he wants to tell them about it in such a way that they can know that the message comes from him. So if there is a God who wants to make such a revelation, and he wants to make it in such a way that we cannot mistake it for the mere words of man, then there really is no other way to seal it by a miracle. Any miracle would be a guarantee to us that this is a genuine word from God and not someone's fine-sounding philosophy or a well-crafted tale. And the conjunction of these two claims, I think, not uh, not seem to any well-informed person to be so absurdly low as to reach, uh, to be beyond the reach of evidence. And so in other words, if it's even possible that atheism is false and God exists, and there is a possibility that there's an afterlife, then what other way can God make a revelation known to us but by miracles? That was William Paley's point in his preparatory considerations in the first chapter of a view of the evidences in Christianity. And so, like I said, what we need to look at is how much does the evidence actually pull in our direction? Just probability wise, mm-hmm. it, it could seem like a small probability, but if it's a greater probability, then if the facts can be accounted for without difficulty on the supposition of what we'll call R, the resurrection hypothesis, but not without greater implausibility on the assumption of not R or the resurrection didn't happen, then that does provide significant evidence in in favor of R. Or in other words, as you said earlier, Bayes is based. (laughs) Uh, That's my new slogan. Hopefully it's not trademarked. Um, The only thing I thought of, um, and we probably should get into this video because we're only like 50 seconds in, is like, I'm not a big fan of the supernatural and natural distinction because like when I think about it, I'm like, well, if God exists, he exists necessarily like the traditional, like particularly like, traditional like monotheistic conception of God, then it seems like he'd be the most natural fact in all of reality because he creates everything else. Um, unless you're like a panentheist, like where he creates like um, matter, energy, quantum fields, like all these things he creates it and it'd be like the most natural thing. Um, whereas like if God doesn't exist, then we'd have something like conservation of energy or maybe like a quantum fundamental level. Then of course God would be supernatural, but like it, we don't want to beg the question here. Um, so that's why I'm kind of like, 
I don't even get the supernatural natural thing a lot of times. But um, yeah, are you ready to keep going, Eric? Or do you want to add something? Yeah, just real quick to that. I, I think the one thing when it comes to at least miracles, though, is that a lot of people will say, well, the evidence for you know, something natural is always going to be a million times greater than the evidence for anything supernatural because the evidence for the natural is is happening all around us every single day. You know, I drop my keys, they fall to the floor, right? It's constantly confirmed all of the, the time, right? And mm -hmm. what David Hume tried to do is he tried to kind of pit like the, the, the natural against the supernatural or, or whatever. But here's the thing, H how would you know... <laughs> Without uh, Christians and, and naturalists can agree that like there is a natural causal order of nature, but if God wants to speak to us, then there's no really other way than to do it, but by something that's going to stand out against the normal backdrop of nature. You know, why would Moses mm -hmm. go, I must see this strange sight, you know, when he saw a bush that was burning, but didn't burn up. And so it, it's without the natural as a backdrop, it would be basically like writing on black ink against black paper. There's no way for a sign mm -hmm. to ever stand out. And so that's just something I would throw in there. But yeah, uh, unless you got anything else to add, we could definitely jump into Paul's arguments. I just think that it was really important to, to cover that specific point because um, it's just something that I think we're always trying to say, well, this is a better explanation than your explanation, but again, the best explanation, the, the, the most likely thing that we would expect, as I said, is just absolutely nothing. And that's what we saw with other messianic pretenders. And so, yeah, that just kind of sets the stage for what we're going to go, go through next here. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's get into it. Alrighty. For the existence and history of Christianity, please indulge me for a minute and allow me to lay out one possible scenario. Around 30 AD, the Middle East was littered with apocalyptic creatures, including one Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus said or did the wrong things at the wrong time to the wrong people. Oh, okay. and was crucified on a cross. As oh, was a standard go. Roman practice for the crucified, Jesus' body. You want me to pause it there? No, you're good. Keep going. Oh, okay. He was thrown into an unmarked grave outside of town. This Jesus had some followers while he was alive. All right, now you can stop. Disappeared into lives never. All right, what's your thoughts All here? Right. So unmarked grave. All right. This was a big thing in his video today um, that Jesus wasn't really buried like is depicted in the New Testament, right? In the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole lot that could be said here. About 10 months ago, Apologia made a response a video to Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy about the burial and why he thinks the biblical accounts are not historical. And so I would refer your audience to go ahead and hear Apologia's arguments. And then Jones um, also made a very lengthy rebuttal to Apologia in a blog, um, which I take to be pretty devastating in response. Um, that's, again, something that I could link in the comments or something, you know, mm -hmm. later on so people can read it. And then Jones also made a video probably about four months ago that I think gives pretty strong evidence for the burial, um, which we could also include as well. And so um, all I'm going to say just in brief response is that Deuteronomy required burial so as not to pollute the land. That's in Deuteronomy 21. Um, and even foreigners and criminals, even that counts even for foreigners and criminals. Uh, also, it's reported uh, that Joseph of Arimathea buried J Jesus in one of his family tombs. I don't think that's a very good um, thing for Christians to just make up as Jesus was on the same council that ended up calling for Jesus's crucifixion. Although I'm sure Apologia would definitely ardently disagree, and he does. Um, and then also Josephus tells us in Jewish War that the Jews 
used to take so much care of the burial of men that they took down those that were condemned and crucified and buried them before going down before the going down of the sun. And we have archaeological evidence of a crucifixion victim named Johanan or Johanan, I believe, that was given an honorable burial. Um, and so we have Jody Magnus, who actually teaches at the same college as Bart Ehrman, UNC Chapel Hill. She's an expert in first century Jewish burial practices. She says the notion, excuse me, the notion that Jesus was unburied or buried in disgrace is based on a misunderstanding of the archaeological evidence and that of Jewish law. I believe the gospel accounts of Jesus's burial are largely consistent with the archaeological evidence. And again, Jones gets into a whole lot more, but I just at least wanted to touch on that because you don't have to deal with the empty tomb if you can just say, well, Jesus was thrown in a mass grave and nobody knows what happened to his body. And that's why the Jews never presented it, you know, 50 days later when Peter started preaching on Pentecost or whenever. And so it's just a mistake to say that Jesus was just thrown in an unmarked grave. Yet in Apologia's latest video, um, where he is dealing with the resurrection argument again, he still is saying the same stuff. It's almost like what Jones said had no purchase on him. And I'd just be curious as to know why, like what, where did Jones go wrong here? Because I, I think his critique on Apologia and his video are a pretty good. It's a pretty good presentation of all of the evidence. And there's, we have scholars. I, I just don't see any reason to think that Jesus wasn't, properly buried so that's all i wanted to touch on there yeah i agree with you. and i think like from what i understand and i could be wrong here but i'm pretty sure i'm right is like when you look at like the earliest like critics of christianity and like looking like jewish perspectives or like um like the christians like kind of say what the, they think the jews were claiming in the gospels um none of them say that jesus like was buried improperly or like he was in a mass grave they say that like um the disciples stole the body or something along these lines um so it, it doesn't yeah. seem like there's really any evidence for what, what he's claiming here well, Justin Martyr, even in his dialogue with Trifo, says the same thing. He says that you guys are basically paraphrasing. You guys are still spreading the story, you know, that the disciples stole the body. And so apparently this isn't just something that's found in Matthew, although it's it's possible that Justin was relying on Matthew. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the most plausible explanation. And so, yeah, I, I think to argue against something also as mundane is just there's nothing supernatural about Jesus being buried. It just mm -hmm. seems like a funny hill to die on, but anyway. yeah, yeah. Um, you gonna keep going, Eric? Yeah, go ahead. Well, let's talk about Peter. He's coming up next year. Do it. Ever recorded by reliable history, never to be heard from again, all except Simon Peter and possibly John. For a culture without last names, there were a lot of people named John. Devastated after the death of his mentor, Peter may have suffered post-bereavement hallucinatory experiences, or PBHE, a well-researched phenomenon documented in papers like these. With PBHE, a lonely, low-mood, fatigued, anxious, bereaved person without history of mental disorder will have an abnormal sensory experience. In about a third of the cases, the individuals will report seeing, hearing, and talking to someone deceased. Or Peter merely decided that Jesus' message of the coming kingdom was too important and that he would take it upon himself to spread it in the wake of his mentor's death. At some point, Jesus' brother James joined the cause, along with one of the Johns. Stories about Jesus began to spread. Not okay, I think we can Peter, stop there. Yeah, it's probably good. So he talks about Peter and he puts in James and John a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So remember what we said earlier about the proper, about the probability. Let's just start with the idea that Peter just thought that the message was just way too important to let go. And um, mm -hmm. so he preached knowing that, you know, Jesus didn't rise, but I'm just going to go ahead and I can't let this go. 
Apologia doesn't actually think that's the most likely explanation, which is probably why he goes into all the grief visions and whatnot. But uh, I think just the idea that he would just lie is just kind of crazy, right? <laughs> Blaming those who are in power for his master's crucifixion is probably an excellent way to get yourself into some hot water. And according to the book of Acts, that's precisely what happened on multiple occasions. Now, Apologia at this point would do his little jingle and say, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> but for that, I would refer Paul and his skeptical friends to Craig Keener's uh, four-volume commentary on the book of Acts. I would refer to him to the work of Colin Hemmer on the book of Acts, where Colin Hemmer lays out 84 different uh, historical facts that are just really minute and can only be shown to be somebody who had some reliable information of somebody that was there and close up to the facts. Um, I would refer people to Lydia McGrew's book, Hidden in Plain View, where she goes through undesigned coincidences through uh, throughout the Pauline epistles and the book of Acts. The historicity of Acts is more than defensible. And even Bart Ehrman admits so much as far as some of the books that I'm laying out here. In response, he basically just resorts to the whole, well, you know, New York City is a real city. And so that doesn't prove that Spider-Man exists kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> that is like such an atheist meme, Bart. You, like, you mm -hmm. can do better than that, you know. Don't and you know the so, Bible is just like Harry Potter? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just like, like, come on, you know. No, I think it's more plausible that somebody was very, like I said, well-informed, habitually truthful, and close up to the facts, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think Peter had every reason to anticipate that some really bad stuff would happen if he was going to preach this message. And then not only that, um, as Paul's going to get into in a second here, dupe other members of the Jesus movement like John and James um, to preach this message in the very city where Jesus was killed. And, and, and think about this, though. Uh, this is something that I, I don't think gets mentioned enough either. It wasn't like Peter had no faith at all to fall back on when Jesus turned out to be a failed Messiah, you know, assuming the resurrection didn't happen. The temple was still standing. The sacrificial system was still a thing. He still had connection to God. He still had Torah, you know. He still had the, the prophets. Uh, he could have just gone back to trying to be a good Jew. Um, he could have been disappointed and sad, sure. But, I mean, people do recover from being disillusioned, you know. Um, I think Apologia himself would absolutely admit this because he acts like he's a disillusioned former Christian who who and he's gotten over it. Um, and, and not only that, but Peter had a system that he, that Paul can't even – wouldn't even fall back on. He had Judaism. He has a, a worldview that provides hope uh, for a future. He he had a worldview that provided for a, a future Messiah. And so again, going back to that that prior probability kind of thing, like the, the probability is enormously higher that that Peter would just get over it and not double down and act like a crazy person. And and then think about this too. If if somebody comes to you and tells you that they've had a grief vision or, or or they've had some kind of a visionary experience, even in a, if you're a hyper charismatic kind of person and somebody gives you a, tells you about a visionary experience about a loved one that, that happened to them, um, you're automatically not going to think, well, yeah, that person's raised from the dead. I totally buy it, Peter. You'd probably be like, 
John and James would be like, uh, Peter, you need to get some help. <laughs> mm-hmm. They wouldn't just like, like he has James there throwing his hammer aside and saying, all right, let's, it's time to preach Jesus. It's time to preach mm-hmm. the resurrection. They'd be like, Peter, you need to get some help, man. There's like something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and furthermore, let's just consider like the hallucination hypothesis. I'm already, I've already kind of, I'm touching on it, but it's not like Peter is some pilgrim flocking to some holy site expecting to see a vision. He wasn't anticipating it. Um, the gospels make it pretty clear to their own embarrassment that the disciples weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. There were no messianic expectations that included the resurrection from the dead of the Messiah. The Jews expected the resurrection of the dead to happen at the final judgment. So Mm -hmm. saying that the disciples combined like a bunch of ideas together that Jesus may have taught this, or maybe he didn't teach this and we're just kind of confused about it. And then we're just going to like throw all this together and have this mental kind of delusion um, just doesn't, I don't think it's just strong enough to point in Apologia's direction where, where the resurrection hypothesis just far outweighs it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think I'm tracking with you. And the only thing like I would add is just like, once again here, like at least the earliest sources don't agree with Paul's hypothesis. Maybe you want to say like, you know, first Corinthians 15 creed is unreliable or something like that. Um, but is, is it like, if we just take, like, if we just go with like, innocent until proven guilty. Um, if you look at first Corinthians 15, like it talks about, um, Jesus appearing to Peter and the, in the 12 and such, like at least they'd have to raise some probability to that would be the more probable solution that there's some sort of appearance to not just Peter, but others rather than some sort of like mass hallucination. And I mean, like, like once again, we're dealing with history. Like you can't have these conclusive proofs. Like when you look at like, what's the most probable explanation, it seems like to me, we should follow the data more than just kind of come up with different theories if, if you understand what i'm saying yeah i don't understand exactly why apologia would cherry pick the creed other than it makes it easier to say that mass hallucinations don't happen mm-hmm. um now maybe someone wants to argue for that and they're gonna you know point to uh, other ways to necessarily do that but paul doesn't he just kind of does away with it and just says you know peter and paul that's enough and mm-hmm. we don't need to really these other 12 and James, they were just kind of like sucked in, you know, by enthusiasm. Well, why? I mean, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, I think you're absolutely right, especially considering, you know, the the threat that they faced. Apologia mm-hmm. acts very much like, well, you know, they were, it was kind of live and let live, and they weren't really persecuted that much. And they were just kind of swept up in Nero's craziness later on. I mean, that's just not the the data that we have. I mean, as he read like the epistle to the Hebrews, those were Christians who were suffering and having their property taken away because they left Judaism and became Christians. I mean, consider Paul. Paul was persecuting the church. Consider Paul's letters to the first to the Thessalonians and First Thessalonians, or or what's written in First Peter, whether you think Peter wrote it or not, over and over in the New Testament letters, there's always this constant threat of persecution that is constantly being thrown out there. And so for somebody to just kind of go on somebody's word on some experience that they claim that they had, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it it makes even less sense for Peter to just basically say, well, Jesus's message is so important that I can't possibly let go. And so I'm going to dupe my buddies and put them in a situation where they're probably going to die. It's just, 
it just doesn't make any sense. You know, it, it just doesn't work. It's this probability of that just seems super low. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you can like do counter arguments and such, but like, I always just think of like, like what's the most straightforward understanding of it. And you could say, well, the 12 aren't named and then you don't get that till the gospels or something. But like, I, all I was trying to point out is like the most straightforward reading is that, well, it, it, it isn't just Peter. Um, but yeah. Do you want to keep on going, Eric? Is there anything you want to add? Um, I think that's basically it. Well, let me, let me check, check my notes here. Um, I'm used to reading scripts, so bear with me here, but, uh, Making you suffer. Yeah. Yeah. I know this is, this, you're actually the first time I've, I've done a live stream um, with <laughs> you there. So, uh, yeah, I think you can go ahead. I think we're good. All right. Let's keep on going. All right. But rather through the person-to-person -person evangelism of the day. Neighbors talking to neighbors, merchants talking to customers. These conversations were meant to recruit new followers, not relay an accurate oral history. So in the telling, details were expanded upon, embellished, or even invented each time they were recounted. As the movement began, a life of its own, Peter the Fisherman was not around to personally affirm or correct the tales being told. A few years later, a Pharisee named Saul was right, traveling around there. persecuting these new Christians. What's your thoughts, Eric? Well, we're going to get to Paul here in just a second, but as far as the stories about Jesus growing and growing like the game of telephone, I don't really think that works. I made a video, I uh, put it out today. The apostles themselves believed that they had the power to work miracles, and miracles were just part of the message from the very outset. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we get to Paul, but Bart Ehrman, Paula Friedrichsen, Marcus Borg, many others who are not Christian scholars at all will admit that Jesus was believed to be a miracle worker, and, and so were many of his followers, and that they drew large crowds. Um, one reason we know that is Paul said that he had the signs of an apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, indicating that the other apostles, the signs of the apostle, they had the same gifting. So this whole idea of legendary development, Jesus working more grand and grand healings and exorcisms and things like that is just pretty unnecessary. Um, plus what we do see um, as far as oral tradition goes to the Corinthians is, is contained in a lot of different creeds that a lot of scholars have said, like these are creedal path, creedal things that Paul probably picked up when he met with Peter and spent two weeks with him, according to what we read in the book of Galatians. And so the creed that we find in like about communion and, 1 Corinthians 11 or the creed about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 shows how the information was actually passed along. It wasn't like, let's just invent more of a fairy tale, especially in a situation where making up stories could possibly get me in hot water. Um, no, oral traditions were passed on. They had a certain style. They had a certain form. That's how we we're able to identify them as creeds like in 1 Corinthians 15. And so making up stories just wasn't something that necessarily that we have evidence for actually happening. We have more evidence that creeds were being reliably passed on. And so I just don't really think that this necessarily works here. Um, we, we know how this resurrection information was passed on. It looks very much like the creed that we have in first Corinthians 15. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the, that's the one thing I was thinking is like, Christianity is very creedal in terms of like we have like the death resurrection of Christ and we'll throw some other things into the creed, but it's very constant. Like it's not just like, uh, well, believe in Jesus and whatever you want, you know, maybe he died, maybe he didn't, you know, things like that. Like it seems like the creedal structure, like I think you're dead on with that, Eric. Yep. All right. You ready to keep going? Yeah. Let's talk about Paul. Let's do it. Burying the moral guilt of his actions under the certainty that he was doing the will of God. But on his way to Damascus, he suffered a psychotic break. 
possibly some form of guilt-induced post-traumatic stress, manifesting in a vision of the allegedly resurrected leader of the group he was harming. So affected by this experience, Saul changed his name to Paul and began recruiting for Christianity and writing letters to churches outlining his theology. Paul, Peter, and John once met in person to swap ideas, but in the end, they didn't actually see eye to eye on things. After several decades of... I think this is where you get into the, the gospel. Yeah, what are your thoughts here? Yeah. So one, this is just a minor pet peeve. Um, Saul's name was never changed to Paul. It even says in Acts 13, 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Saul, Paul are just two different names throughout scripture, probably because the New Testament uses two different languages. Saul was a Hebrew name. Paul probably could have been a Greek translation of it. Whatever. It's a total nitpick. It's kind of like one of those things when somebody says, well, that begs the question and they really mean raises the question. It just drives <laughs> me crazy. So mm -hmm. anyways, it's no big deal. People, I'm sure there's silly things that I say that people can nitpick on too, but I just want to throw that out there for fun. But mm -hmm. um, conversion disorder. Okay. Well, that is one heck of an experience um, because it turned a vicious persecutor into a faithful martyr. I, I don't think we can find any comparison in history where someone went from a murdering zealot um, to uh, a saintly missionary who preaches, you know, to love your enemies and all of these other things like Paul did. And Paul did experience several days of blindness. So that right off the bat is pretty odd there. Now, Apologia would probably say for the Bible tells me so jingle out there. But again, I'm totally willing to uh, debate the historicity of Acts. Uh, I will make a whole series of videos arguing for the historicity of Acts at some point. Um, also, we see very little evidence that Paul felt any guilt regarding his actions. He seemed more than content judging by his own letters that he was very happy with his lifestyle. He, he says that he was blameless according to the law in Philippians. Um, mm -hmm. he, he was very proud of his heritage. Um, and then as I mentioned to mentioned earlier, Paul later believed that he was able to work miracles uh, while ministering as an apostle. Now we never hear him doing any kind of miracles while he was still a Pharisee. It's only after his conversion, but he visits Corinth in 51 AD. Um, and then about four or five laters, four or five years later, he writes, Hey, I have the signs of an apostle. You mm -hmm. guys have seen it. Well, that seems to indicate that the other apostles were also working miracles too. Like I said, he, Paul doesn't just say this to the Corinthians. He says this in to the Romans. He says this to the Thessalonians who he, who he has met. Um, the Romans he hadn't met, but he obviously had a reputation for being a miracle worker. Uh, you know, it's like the line from Dodgeball, you know, that's a pretty bold move, Cotton. Let's see how that plays out. I mean, to say to a bunch of former pagans that you worked wonders among them, if these were just placebo effects, mm -hmm. you know, something that must have, you know, didn't, you know, they had like a headache and then it went away or something minor or something like that. Um, or, or, or maybe they had a, an ailment that temporarily thought there was healed and they just felt a little bit better and then it went away. Kind of like we, we see uh, so often in the church today, although I do think genuine healings and miracles still happen today. But to say that five or years later to a church is pretty bold. It's, it's saying that there's probably more than something like that happening here. And we know that Paul wasn't some wild-eyed televangelist driving traveling around in a private jet. I mean, he worked with his own hands. The guy refused to marry. He, he wasn't in it for money or ladies. <laughs> he was beaten half to death several times. Uh, 
he was stoned and chased, you know, from town to town. I mean, the guy was super sincere, obviously. So he's not like so-called miracle workers that we often see today. He said that he and other apostles were like men condemned to die in the arena. And so it's not like what Paul is saying, Apologia is saying, it's, it's not completely impossible, but possibility again is really cheap. The most likely thing that would happen given not our is Paul would, Paul would continue. Excuse me. I got a little blessed your audience with some spit there. Um, but Paul would just continue in Judaism and keep persecuting people. That that's the most likely thing that, that would have happened. And so, yeah, it, it just, it doesn't make a whole, I, I just don't think it's mm-hmm. as good of an explanation, obviously. And so before we jump into some of the rest and, and I don't know, we don't have to necessarily go through all of this video, but mm-hmm. let's just sum up what we have right here. Yeah. Can I add something before we sum up? Yeah, if that's yeah absolutely. Definitely. And I'm good to go for like another 40, 50 minutes. So we don't have to rush. Um, yeah. In the beginning, Paul gives this analogy, and I just thought about this, and he talks about how like um, we can describe starting our car without any sort of like outside force um, supervening on it, which is cool. And I like that's a good analogy um, in terms of this, to a degree thinking about these things. Well, couldn't we just say the same thing about Paul? Like we have this explanation of Paul who thinks he's like the Jew of Jews, doing everything right, checking all the boxes. He thinks he's doing everything right. He's not having this like guilt. He'll lose this guilt about it because um, Paul says he doesn't say he did. And then he had a vision of the risen Jesus. And then that's why he became a Christian. Like we don't have to add anything extra like grief onto this thing. We don't have to do an outside force. Like he kind of gives with this car analogy. So it just seems like to me, like just, I thought about that as you were talking here, like we just don't need to add this like psychotic break. Cause that's just not what Paul says. Um, we have to add extra to that. Yeah, that's exactly right. The more extra that you have to add in order to save your skepticism is the more unlikely that it's going to be right. Mm-hmm. Possibility is cheap cheap but again if the facts can be accounted for without difficulty on the supposition of r without greater implausibility on not r again that's what provides significant evidence for for r for the resurrection and so let's just recap like peter said you know he says he probably had a grief vision okay well we already know that the probability of that is is pretty low right um and so james and john were like sure thing pete like Let's let, let's do this. That's mm-hmm. even lower probability, right? I mean, for them to just go along and be like, sure, without any examination or showing any concern for the mental health of their friend has very low probability. And then for the uh, Saul or Paul to have such a massive conversion disorder experience that it turns him blind for several days and gives him some sort of, sort of long lasting mental delusionalness kind of sense where he thinks he can work miracles, the probability of that is also very, very low. And so when you compound improbability upon improbability, the odds of the thing just simply fall apart, right? So let's let's do a little bit of math uh, just for fun. I'm going to be very generous to some of Paul's apologia's theories here. Let's say the chances of Peter having a grief vision are like 25%, mm-hmm. you know, and then Paul suffering conversion disorder is like, say, one in five, 20%. And then James and John or the rest of the disciples join in without question. We'll put very generously at 15%. I think it's much lower than that. And then we'll be super generous and just say that there is no empty tomb. Uh, we'll, we'll put that at 50%. And that the gospel reports of the resurrection, the physicality of the resurrection, the polymodalness of the resurrection, you know, they they saw him, they touched him, they heard him speak over course of 40 days 
let's just be super generous. We could even go minimal facts-ish a little bit here and just say that the odds of that are really slim. It's like 90% like that didn't happen, okay? Well, when we multiply, when you put these together, you don't add the percentages together. You, you, you have to multiply them together. You're multiplying these hypotheses together. And what you end up getting is 0.003375 or basically way less than 1%, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is why Apologia was intellectually honest enough to say, yeah, it's like a lottery ticket. The, the hypothesis is low, but he just, again, thinks that any natural hypothesis is better. But again, we would expect no grief visions, no conversion disorder, no mass delusions, no burial accounts, no stories of women at the empty tomb, no four gospels, uh, which I would agree, would argue that they can be argued for as restorable, uh, restorable, reliable documents that are not anonymous, by the way, uh, which is why, again, I'm not a fan of the minimal facts approach. But we wouldn't have any of that. And so this is what skepticism saving gets you, is you have to work really hard. And I feel like so much apologia's channel is based on this, is that he has to multiply hypotheses with less plausible, more ad hoc explanations in order to, to save his skepticism. Mm -hmm. And the, that's only reasonable when you've already concluded that the evidence for a miracle is already so low that it can't really even enter into the game. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, this is Paul's theory. We could watch the rest of the video. I, we, we could stop here. It's totally up to you. The rest of it, he does do, to be honest. And, and again, I like Paul. I'm, I mean, no offense here, but he does a lot of gish galloping. There's so much stuff that he throws out there, um, but it's up to you. But, but this is really ultimately the heart of the matter. And, and yeah. that's really what I wanted to get across. Yeah, we can keep going. I think there's a couple minutes of of like a lot of like the content he gives. But I think I agree because like a big part I think of like being like an apologist and thinking about these things and just like with like raising theories is like just showing the intellectual price tag of your theory. Like someone could say, well, like if you're a theist, you're committed to the supernatural, and maybe that's like a cost of your theory, which you know I could debate. But like that's like part of like I think of like developing and debating these worldviews is like what has the highest price tag. And I think about like Paul's view. Like you're gonna have to say, well. Paul maybe had a psychotic break and Peter just hallucinated. Um, and like in first Corinthians 15, what is supposedly the earliest creed, like the 500 and the 12, like these are just myths. Like that's the price tag of his view. Like he has to add all these things on. And like, as a Christian, like I can just say, no, that's just the truth. And like, that's, and it's just like, it shows costs in his theory. It doesn't disprove his theory, but it just, it just makes the price tag a lot higher um, for committing to something like Paul does. Yeah, you just have to do a whole lot more work in, in order to, again, save the skeptical hypothesis when, again, I would argue that the probability cannot be so low that there's a possibility that there is a God and there is an afterlife and that if he wants to communicate a message to us, that he could be able to do it by some kind of a miracle. And so mm -hmm. as long as, as that's even at least some kind of possibility, the, the prior probability cannot be so low that it can't be overcome by the evidence, right? And mm -hmm. so it's kind of like if you want to say, say you're a, an, an ah Lincolnist, right? You you believe in um, presidents. You just don't think that Lincoln exists. You know, it's, the story of Lincoln is just too great to 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 be real, right? Well, mm -hmm. now you have to do a whole lot of extra work in order to mm -hmm. explain away all of the data that we have for Lincoln, right? And, yeah. and it's just like you're kind of like eventually you're sort of moving like it's like having stuff that's stuck under the carpet. You can move it around so much, but 
it's still going to pop up somewhere else. You know what I mean? And and mm -hmm. it just epistemically, you just end up, it, it just, it all, it just falls apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm tracking with you. Um, you ready to keep going? Yeah, sure. We can keep going. Let's do it. A variety of Greek speaking people who never met Jesus or even Peter took it upon themselves to begin writing down some of the stories that had circulated about Jesus and the sayings attributed to him. These written fragments were later compiled into what we now call Gospels, including some links to Old Testament themes, some explanations about how the guy people knew from Nazareth could also be from Bethlehem, and activities they imagined post-resurrection Jesus did. A great many Gospels were written. Each author who compiled a new version expanded upon Jesus' power and his divinity, going from a preacher who did miracles only under very low profile to the co-creator of the universe who performed publicly at the drop of a hat. To someone who killed and resurrected people out of spite. To a powerful resurrected military man with an anthropomorphic giant talking cross as his sidekick. On occasion, some of the early Christians right, we were could stop there for oh, yeah. and suffered consequences oh, because of their disruptive behavior. It. Forgive me. Okay. Oh, no, you're all good. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's just kind of trying to thrash the Gospels, right? And so mm -hmm. there's so much that I could say here, um, but I would just refer people to my channel. Like I said, it's um, I'm trying to build kind of line upon line um, evidence on why we can say that the gospel writers were written by the traditional authors, which is what is been well attested uh, by the early church fathers. Um, and on if, if they weren't gospels, if they didn't report supernatural things, I kind of doubt that we would be having the debate that we have over who actually wrote the gospels. Um, I think there's plenty of evidence for that. Um, I don't think legendary development as far as Jesus being, he's referring to John's gospel, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Mm -hmm. Well, you could read Mark's gospel and he forgives sins. Um, he is doing, he's calming the storm. He's acting in the place of God at multiple points. If you understand who the son of man is in Daniel chapter seven, uh, this is somebody who is on equal footing with God. Um, you just read the first three verses of Mark's gospel, and he says, he, he basically changes around Isaiah's phrasing to, to refer to the Lord, Yahweh, to Jesus. So right at the very earliest gospel, Mark is referring to Jesus as God. This This legendary idea that it just grew more and more with the telling, it, it just doesn't necessarily add up. Um, if you look at different things like the argument from undesigned coincidences that cuts against the whole idea that there's legendary development because in different gospels, it looks like there's you, it, the legendary development that you would expect to see is is in a different gospel than than what you would expect. It's just kind of a cherry picking thing. There's more I could get into that. Again, it would take us way too much time, but um, this is why I would highly encourage people to be able to learn to defend the Gospels and their reliability, um, because it's way too easy for somebody like Apologia, when we're going to grant, hey, these really, we don't have to argue for these being reliable. Well, then he can kind of get away with some of this stuff a little bit easier. I, I guess that's my point there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I don't have too much to add because the resurrection is not my wheelhouse. Um, so I appreciate your, your insight there, Eric. On occasion, some of the early Christians were troublemakers and suffered consequences because of their disruptive behavior. But generally, early Christians had a very live and let live existence, and only relatively infrequently were bothered because of their ideology. 
though unfortunately it did happen sometimes. They were accepting of people, kind to the poor and widows, and so grew in numbers. Centuries later, in 303 I, AD... I do think Paul's pretty... He is kind of right. Like, uh, I was learning about Roman history a lot this year. Like, like Christian per persecution in, like, um, the first three centuries before the legalization of Christianity, it's very sporadic. Like, you're going to have, like, the Neronian persecution, um, and maybe you had something going on with, like, Suetonius's quote about Christus. Um, who knows if that's Christ or not? I don't really know. And, like, you're going to have different ones over time. Like, I think it's, like, the Decian persecution. But he's right. It's sporadic. Um, so I don't have... I don't know what your thoughts are there, I mean, we have Pliny, uh, the younger, talking about um, dealing with Christians in his area. Mm -hmm. That's like 112, obviously. That's much later. Yeah. But my thoughts, as I kind of mentioned earlier, you have the book of Hebrews, which was probably written anywhere between, I don't know, 50s and maybe 70s. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there was Jews that were persecuting people who were leaving Judaism and going to Christianity. You had Paul going around and persecuting people. Um, if Acts is reliable, and again, I would argue that it was, that the 12 were arrested. Peter was arrested. James, uh, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, was beheaded. Um, you have the stoning of Stephen. You have uh, the letters, like I said, that Paul wrote um, to the Thessalonians. That makes it very clear that they were being persecuted. You have the people that uh, in the letter of 1 Peter is obviously the theme throughout that whole entire book is enduring suffering. So obviously Christians were being mistreated there. And then you do have the Neronian persecution, but Tacitus says that they were known for the, the Christians. He says they were abominable. He has a horrible expectation, uh, uh, expectation, a horrible image of the Christians, right? He has a horrible view of them. He says that they were known for abom practicing abominations and for the hatred of all mankind. Mm -hmm. um, why were they so easy to scapegoat? So that to me, the, the letters that we have, what we have in Acts, Paul himself was stoned. Uh, Paulogia is very fond of saying, well, we don't have anywhere where the, um, the apostles were given a chance to recant. You know, they just got swept up in the Neronian persecution probably. And well, I I'm sorry, when you're stoned and left for dead, <laughs> and beaten and whipped as many times as Paul and you keep on going. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go on to say that like all the, he, Paul says that the apostles were like men condemned to die in the arena. Well, the sure. Maybe we don't have as much details of all of their deaths that we'd like to have, but the probability that they were willing to suffer and be willing to die for their beliefs, especially considering what happened to Jesus and that they started preaching in Jerusalem. I mean, what exactly would they expect? The probability that they were willing to suffer and die is pretty great. And the fact that, and that's another thing, I forgot to mention this too. He said that Peter wouldn't have been around to correct some of the stories that were going and being spread. I forgot to mention this, but Peter is mentioned in first Corinthians. This is side note, something I forgot to cover. Um, Peter is mentioned in first Corinthians, like the Corinthians knew him. So Peter would have been around to at least correct the Corinthians. But anyways, mm -hmm. the point is, is that th there was persecution, obviously, mm -hmm. and especially in the early church, R read the book of revelation. My, my goodness, mm -hmm. they're talking about martyrs and a guy named Antipas being martyred, uh, martyrs singing a song and one saying how long, Oh Lord, until, 
you know, were avenged and all this other stuff. Obviously, something was going on in the early church. It was not mm -hmm. easy to be a Christian. And so I do agree that it was pockets here and there, and sometimes it was easier mm -hmm. in other times than others. But I think we need to be careful and not go to the other side of the extreme either and just be like, being a Christian was, you know, flowery beds of ease for the most part and mm -hmm. a few hard spots here and there. I, I don't think yeah. that's historical. And I think William yeah. Paley does a very good job in the view of evidences of Christianity in his first five to seven chapters of going through all of that. And I would highly recommend, it's a free book that you can get. It's public domain on Google, a view of the evidences of Christianity. Paley goes through all of the reasons why we can believe that the early church was willing to suffer and die for the sincerity of their beliefs. Mm. Yeah, I think I'd agree with you a lot. Um, maybe I misstated myself in the beginning. I just think like, like I always like when I grew up, I had this assumption where I was like, oh, for 300 years, it was pitchforks out and every night they were hunting down the Christians. And that, and right. that, like that, 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 ver that vision is obviously false. So I think I'd agree yeah. with a lot with you have to say. So yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Awesome. I think there's about one little more bit here where he talks about the supernatural. Um, and I think that's basically the gist of what Paul has to say. So are you ready to finish yeah. this thing up, Eric? Let's, let's wrap it up. Let's do it. Christianity did become illegal in Rome for a while, but 10 years later it was given legal protection and soon became the Roman Empire's first official religion, which is when it really took off into the institution we know today. In short, to account for the established history of Christianity, we need only a single disciple to claim Jesus rose, a later convert who hallucinated the same, and an urban legend to spread. Now, everything that happens in this origin story I just told is fully consistent with the way first century Rome operated consistent with basic human nature, and consistent with the spread of every other past and present world religion, most of which you do not think receive supernatural help to get where they are. Every aspect of this story is mundane, boring, and exactly what you would expect. With no resurrection required, it explains every fact you may have. Empty tomb? Part of the legend. No one produced his body? Of course not, it's in an unmarked mass grave. People saw risen Jesus? Part of the legend. We have no record of anyone, save Paul's admitted vision, who both gives their name and claims to have seen him. Disciples died for their belief. There are no historical or even biblical records that say any of the 12 disciples did. Others died for the belief. The martyrs probably believed it, but they weren't in a position to know. The Gospels are eyewitness accounts? No, the Gospels are anonymous. Could a supernatural miracle explain it all too? Of course, but since a supernatural miracle can explain literally anything, anytime, ever, the question really is, can it be reasonably explained without a resurrection? If you're honest with yourself, you'd have to admit that I have, even if you prefer the miraculous version for some reason or another. And to be sure, there are other ways the presence of Christianity can be explained without invoking the supernatural, but I think this one works well with no big assumptions needed. Is there something? I think that's an interesting kind of finish. I do want to say, like, once again, the supernatural, natural stuff really bothers me um, because a lot of the arguments you could use to say, well, this is what naturalism is. You could just kind of use um, to say, well, this is actually, you know, um, what it is. Like I did this debate with Godless Engineer. We talked a lot about this and John's awesome. I think he's listening right now. So shout out to John. Um, but like, like once again, the supernatural natural distinction is like, not like what people think it is. And like, I think like even Paul, I think he's talking, I think he, it seems like he goes further to say like materialism. Like I'd be curious if Paul thinks panpsychism is supernatural. Um, like it's the idea that like consciousness is kind of like necessary to some degree. Though like there's a lot of atheists that hold it because he talked about it in a different video where um, materialism would eventually explain consciousness. And it's like, well, you're if that's what's considered natural, well, you're gonna cut out all these panpsychists and maybe even like more realists depending on how far you go. Um, so it's just very ill-defined and it really bothers me because there's not many good definitions of it. Um, so there's my getting off my um, soapbox talking about how I hate the supernatural natural distinction.
Yeah, sure. And I don't have as much of a problem with it, but I haven't looked into it as much. So, um, like I said, the history is kind of more the wheelhouse there. I will say that it just seems to me like Paul is a little bit overconfident. Like, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you'll obviously agree mm-hmm. um, with what I'm saying. And I think what we've said here is that there's actually no, there's there's a lot of problems mm-hmm. with what he's saying there. Um, there's a lot of reasons to think that the probability of what happened with Peter is very low. The probability of what happened on his view with what Paul happened is very low. The very, the very idea that so many people would just be completely swept up into this thing with absolutely no basis whatsoever. Um, and, and like I said, even the people that were the closest to the apostles would, wouldn't be worried, you know, for, Mm -hmm. for their friend and being like, you saw what now instead they just be like, yeah, let's just, let's just throw our lives away. It just doesn't, I I don't think that it's explained as well really at all. I, I, Mm -hmm. so, um, and the fact that you have to multiply all of these different hypotheses to save the conclusion, um, I don't think that it works. And so, um, again, if you if you can say, prove definitively God doesn't exist, um, then you got something. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think that that that's a whole other issue, and I don't think that based on some of the things, at least in his videos, where he tries to debunk some of the theistic arguments, you run into a lot of the same thing. Like any sort of alternate explanation that's not supernatural is automatically a better one, even Mm -hmm. if it's not as probable. And I I think that's kind of the thing with Apologia's epistemology in general. I think it's like, um, are you familiar with Morian Schiff's, Eric? Uh, No. So like what it is, is it's like, I think it's the philosopher from like the 1930s, 40s. And he's trying to f- defeat skepticism, if I'm right. And it's like, like, you know, like how can the external world exist? And he's like, well, I can, I can see my hand right here. You know, like you can see my hand, everyone listening, like skepticism is just false. And like all these arguments for and against skepticism, just throw them out. Cause it's just obvious that skepticism is false. So it's called like a Morian shift because he just kind of goes, well, then all these different arguments, they don't even matter because, you know, there's just no evidence for this like skeptic, skeptic hypothesis. And it almost seems like to me, like Paul's doing something similar, like an inverse of like a resurrection where it's like, he looked, and I don't want, I hate so-called secular analysis. This isn't secular analyzation, but maybe like, like Paul looks at this and it's like, okay, there's just no good evidence for God existing. Like, I'm just like, you know, there's a cosmological, teleological, like all these, these arguments are trash. They're not good. So I'm going to have this big Morian shift where instead of having like, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't looking at like the prior probability of the resurrection. It's like, no, this is very, very unlikely that God exists. So I'm just doing this Morian shift where it's going to take a lot of evidence to overcome this like extreme skepticism um, to the, God's existence where, I mean, in some cases that's justified and, you know, we'd have to talk about like the actual arguments for and against God. Um, to get there. Right. Um, so, right. yeah. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. We can back up and we can definitely do that, um, you know, separately. And I think that's a good conversation to have. I mm. totally understand if you're going to come to the data where the probability of God existing on your view is like, you know, 1%. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. Yeah. It's going to be a whole lot easier to try and pick something where, like I said, it's like, you know, it's, chances are pretty low, but at least there's some chance. So that's got to mm-hmm. be the right one. Um, and so that's where we do need to back up and we just need to look at some of the, the evidences for the existence of God and just mm-hmm. look at it the way that we look at what we've talked about, you know, what is more plausible, uh, the 
you know, theistic hypothesis. What do, what do we expect to see that's more consistent mm -hmm. um, versus, you know, naturalism? And so for that, I would totally refer people to like the works of Richard Swinburne, like The Existence of God or a shorter mm -hmm. book, Is There a God? Um, he definitely does it from a more probabilistic standpoint and builds a cumulative case. And so um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having to overcome that part of your skepticism first in order to even consider something like this. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I would definitely point people to. Yeah, I think if I was like, if I had a super low prior on God existing, like for whatever reason, I think I'd probably adopt a similar strategy to Paul. Because like, you know, like if you're going to explain this data, like if there's a very low probability that God exists, like in Paul's mind, then of course these things are definitely more probable than a resurrection. So I totally, I really do understand where he's coming from. Um, sure. So prior probabilities, Bayes is based. Um, and yeah, do you have any kind of la like last thoughts on this, Eric, before we start to wrap things up here? No, I, I think that's basically it. Um, there's a good quote um, that I, I think Reminded me a lot of Apologia. I, I really like Apologia. I think he seems like a, a nice guy. I'd love to meet mm -hmm. and like sit down and eat lunch with the guy someday or something like that. Um, but I, I like this quote. It just makes me really think about his videos. And this is from Joseph Butler, who was writing in the 1700s. And so you're going to have to bear with some of the language here. Um, but he writes, the truth of our religion, like the truth of common matters, is to be judged by all the evidence taken together. And unless the whole series of things which may be alleged in this argument and every particular thing in it can reasonably be supposed to have been by accident, for here the stress of the argument for Christianity lies, then the truth of it is proved. In like manner, as in any common case, numerous events acknowledged were to be alleged in proof of any other event, event disputed, the truth of the disputed event would be proved. Not only if one of the acknowledged ones did of itself clearly imply it, but though no one singly did so, if the whole acknowledged events taken together could not be in reason to supposed to be have happened unless the disputed one was true. And then he says, and this is my favorite part of the quote. I'm glad. Thanks for bearing with me for the, the longer <laughs> part of that. But he says, it is obvious how much of an advantage of this nature of evidence gives to the persons who attract, uh, who attack Christianity, especially in conversation, for it is easy to show in a short and lively manner that such and such, such and such things are liable to objection, that this and another thing is of little weight in itself, but it is impossible to show in like manner the united force of the whole argument in one view. And I think that really just kind of sums up, Paul is definitely good at making these videos in a very short and lively manner and mm -hmm. just trying to pick things apart one by one that it doesn't really weigh as much. But again, when you add these things up, and they end up really being at least, even if they're slightly more probable on the resurrection hypothesis, uh, they, they actually pile up and make a strong argument on the side mm. of Christianity. Mm. Yeah, I, I would just echo like an appreciation for Paul. Um, not well, the apostle, of course, too. But I'm thinking more of like <laughs> I'm thinking more of Pelagia here, because um, like I'm doing this conversation with like John the Godless Engineer tomorrow, just talking like how Christians and atheists can have better conversations. And like one of the things I really think about is just like appreciating the other side, because like as much as we may say like oh they're wrong or da 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 da, like they're challenging us, and we're 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 bet we're getting better. Like Paul is making us better. Um, he's, right. he's helping us to like refine our ideas and really like get down to like what is true. So I really do appreciate Paul. Um, and yeah, so I just echo that.
Hey, if Apologia wants to know maybe why God feels so hidden to him, and this is going to be horrible and I'm going to get booed at for this, but maybe God <laughs> is indirectly using him right now and it's not over. He still has uh, plenty of time to change his mind and he may, mm -hmm. um, and we should be praying for him and all of that good stuff. But um, I really think that a lot of times guys like Bart Ehrman are uh, a gift to the, in a sense mm -hmm. to us, because they give us an opportunity to think and to mm -hmm. really put to test uh, our truth claims and, and, and compare them, you know, and, and sharpen us. And Hey, you know, if we're wrong, let, let's, let's find out. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that we're wrong. I think the probability is more on our side than not. Um, but I, I think if we're after truth, we, we should, we should want the truth regardless mm -hmm. of wherever it leads. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I hope Christian atheist agnostic, anyone listening, just, I hope we all just want the truth and we seek truth and we, 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 we live in this world together and we can try to figure it out. So it's a lot of fun. Um, but Eric, do you have any, like, how can people find you, follow you, all that stuff as we wrap things up here? Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, handle is, is, is Jesus Alive. Um, although I'm taking a little bit of a break off of there for a while. Um, it's Facebook, same thing as Jesus Alive. Uh, YouTube channel, again, is Testify. Just look up Eric Manning, Testify Apologetics or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, my channel will come up. Feel free to subscribe. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's I also have a website that I a blog that I wrote for several years kind of before switching over to YouTube is JesusAlive.com. Um, I have over 100 articles on there, uh, mostly dealing with the reliability of the Gospels. Um, and so be sure to uh, feel free to avail yourself to those resources as well. And uh, so, yeah, that's where you can find me. Mm, that's great. And if you're listening via YouTube, Eric's thing is literally just added in the description. So you can just click that and go right there on your way out and subscribe. Great channel. Um, but thank you everyone for tuning in. It's been so much fun. I hope you find this as like constructive. And I don't think we meant, mean this to be like a be all end all da, 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 we're done here, but just like part of like an increasing dialogue and just searching for truth together. So I hope everyone appreciated it. Um, Finding Truth, Zozio, Logically, um, Godless Engineer, um, Andreo. I saw Shannon Q was in here at one point. Everyone was listening. We appreciate you spending some time out of your day. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate it. And one last time, Eric, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yep, and I hope everyone has a good rest of your evening. Have a good one, and God bless.